I think that's it. I'm be I'm having a couple other things currently looked into, although the wait lists are really long, but those are my primary diagnoses. I feel like once you get one autoimmune disease, you're just prone to getting a bunch more. You really do. It's like you get one and it's like, how many more of these can I collect? It's kind of like playing cards. <laughs> yeah, for real same. That's how it was for me. I was diagnosed at 12. So I had scleroderma, then rhinos, and then at 21, I had APS. That's so early to be diagnosed. I was, my endo wasn't diagnosed until I was 24. Mm-hmm. And it was found by accident. My migraines, I was diagnosed. Well, I've had migraines a headache all my life, but they were diagnosed as chronic a little bit after my endometriosis surgery. So kind of all my diagnoses came like literally all at once. And how old are you now? I'm 29. So I had my surgery when I was 28 in 2018. And I was diagnosed uh, when I was 24. I think that was like 2016-ish. Oh, wow. I'm actually so grateful I was diagnosed at an early age because it's allowed me to live like, I guess, my normal life. It makes a big difference when you're diagnosed early for a lot of chronic illnesses, because the sooner you catch it, the sooner you can get treatment and you can start doing anything that might even give you like a little bit of quality of life. And you don't go through that whole like, oh my God, what's wrong with me phase. Yeah, for sure. Because it's been my normal. But the only thing was that as I got older, I didn't realize how much physical pressure I was putting myself in because I didn't know otherwise. So I thought it was normal to have this everyday pain. Yeah, that's what I went through with my endo because my periods were really bad starting um, in high school. And I was kind of like, oh, okay, that's just normal. And anyone I told, they were like, oh, no, that's normal. Periods hurt. No. (laughs) Yeah, no. no. You're not supposed to have this much body pain all the time. Honestly, I mean, after I had my stroke, I didn't have a period for... I think around eight months. That was the best time ever (laughs) because I had no, I had just something else going on. But once I got it back, my periods were just, I want to say like heavy to the point where it wasn't normal. And that's when I was diagnosed with like low iron deficiency and I, you know, so much other stuff. And it's just like something that's assumed normal. It can be way worse. Oh yeah. And it's good that they actually like diagnose you with low iron because so many doctors have told me that like the period blood that you you get rid of basically it's not counting towards your blood so you can't be low blood when you're having your period because it's just extra mm-hmm. meanwhile half of us are like exhausted cold feeling like we are low in iron yeah. from our period and then these doctors are going no that's not a thing Yes, I'm so grateful for my medical team because honestly, I don't know if it's because I've been with them for so long that they they see me more as a person than a patient. So I appreciate that. That's so important. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people think it's like, um, oh, they're just doctors and they don't look out for the best for you. But in my personal experience, because I've been with them for so long, they saw me grow up. I think that's why there's that like that little extra connection. Yeah. If you can create like a personal connection with your team, like it makes a huge difference. I did that with um, my pelvic floor physiotherapist and Mm -hmm. my pain specialist kind of a little bit because I was in a pelvic pain group where they were both like facilitators. So they got to know me on a really different level and the way that they treat me and the way that they listen to me and like take me seriously, it's completely different. But I've also had doctors where they just didn't care. So, oh, yeah, there's always those. There's always that one doctor. Yes, I remember when I was in the hospital first for it was something. (laughs) And (laughs) one of the many things. Yes, one of the many things. (laughs) And I remember this experience. It was so awful. I remember the first admitting doctor. It was like over the night. And he was like, okay, so she may have cancer. And then he walked out of the room. And like left us with that. So we're all crying. We're like, what kind of a doctor is this? Like, how is he just going to tell us without even like checking anything? He's just like, oh, so um, she's feeling dizzy. She has all this and that. Um, Yeah, so she might have cancer and then just walks out of the room. That is not like a diagnosis that you just like walk out of the room. Like you sit down and you're like, this is what this means. Not you have cancer. Bye. Good yeah, luck and, with that. <laughs> and then he walks in like 10 minutes later. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. It was a different patient. I was like, wow, you can't just be telling people that and expect them to be fine with it. Needless to say, I never saw him again. (laughs) Thank God. Yeah. I had had something similar to that. I had a cardiology appointment and they lost the diary that went with the halter. Uh So they didn't read it properly. And then they sent someone else's report to my primary care physician. 
Oh my god! And I've had that like more than once. Like I had one of my primary care, um, a doctor that I used to see actually handed me somebody else's test result to go home with. Just so not good, especially when you're dealing with something that we're dealing with and you need like, oh my gosh, that stresses me out. And it's not even my thing. (laughs) I was baffled. And then because I needed the cardiology report um, to get into one of the clinics, And when my doctor sent it to them, they're like, this isn't her report. Oh my gosh. That you didn't even take the time to look at the right name. Like, do you, like, this is literally your job. No, for real. That's just ridiculous. That just proves that there's still flaws in the medical system that need to be addressed. There, There really are. And like, they're so deeply entrenched, some of them, that it's, it's hard. I feel like in some cases, some of the doctors, we just need them to retire so that we can kind of fix the system with like the newer doctors. Yeah. You know, I respect doctors. I respect yeah. all the learning that they went through, but sometimes they have to be open to experimenting other things versus it's only their way. That's it. Literally. Know? Yeah. That's the problem. They don't realize what they're actually doing. Like it's their job, but it's not as important to them as it is to us. Yeah. Like our life depends on it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And for them, it's like, okay, I got up, I went to work and then I'm going to go home. And in some cases they don't even see us again. So we get like one shot with them and we're one in like a million patients that they've had. And you don't get to make that like lasting impression where they actually see you as a person or as somebody that needs help. Yeah. Once you find a good doctor or a good team, because like for me, I have to see like a pulmonologist, I have to see a cardiologist, I have to see so many. And it's just important to all have them at one and they're all like connected. It just makes my life so much easier. (laughs) I wish they would talk to each other more. Like, I wish that they would have, like, you all know each other. So why are you not talking to each other about me? Like, if you can talk to each other in a social setting, you can write an email about me. Yeah. yeah. Um, all my doctors, they call me Kimmy. I mean, oh. I, I go by Kim or Kimberly, yeah. but they, they're just so, like, I'm telling you, like, that personal yeah. connection. They've seen me for years, and they're like, Kimmy, how are you? <laughs> and it's those little things that I appreciate and I look forward to. Yeah because you feel like a person and not like a number yeah I'm blessed to have such a caring team I mean honestly just because I go through so much and sometimes like it's so important for them to even though they can't physically relate to you but I just feel like they're so understanding of I'm having a bad day and I'm not always smiling why aren't you smiling today and like they know me Yeah, like they pick up on like little differences in your behavior and your mood and they actually like respond to them the way that a person would. Exactly. But I didn't find this team until I I was 21. So from age uh, 12 until 21, I finally found someone and it was so frustrating going from doctor to doctor, having to explain your whole history and then having to explain it again to another doctor. Like uh, it's frustrating. (laughs) It baffles me that they don't read the notes before you get there. Like, oh, you're yeah, just no. waiting for me to sit here and tell you my whole life. But no. you didn't look yeah. at any of the test results or my prior surgeries or whatever. And you're just kind of like, so tell me about you. Yeah. Would you like me to start like a year from now, two years? Like, how far back do you want to go here? Yes, I totally get it. A few years ago, I explained everything to the nurse that walked in first. And then I have to explain it again to the doctor. It's like, oh my gosh, you should have just told me (laughs) to stop. Yeah, like if, or have all of them all in the room so I can tell all of you at once so that there's no like broken telephone or I don't forget something that I told one of you and not the other one. Like it's just, especially when you're in a merge, like you're exhausted because you're there because you're either in pain or you're sick. You don't have Mm -hmm. the energy to explain your whole complicated medical history to somebody. Yes, I have short-term memory loss. So certain things like I forget. So my mom and my sister are always there with me. And in case I forget, like, or I can't explain it in the right ways, I'm glad they're there with me, but I'm just like, not everyone has that. No, they really don't. I have, I'm the same. Like I bring my mom places cause I forget stuff because of mm-hmm. the brain fog with like my, with all my illnesses. And I'm, yeah. I'm not ever. And I feel like at the same time as having another person there kind of is like more proof mm-hmm. because they've seen your condition and like how you are. So it's not just you saying it. It's like another person that they're there to back you up. And it's like two people instead of just one person. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, when I was little, I didn't know like what fatigue was, brain fog, nothing. So they will look at me like, oh, no, you're fine. You're just a regular child. So my mom would have to be like, no, something's wrong with her. And then they will listen. But it's like when it's hard to advocate yourself when people are always telling you you're crazy, you're wrong. This doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. You're too young to be going through this. I'm like, no. Yep. Because, and you're not taught, like nobody teaches how, how to advocate for yourself. Oh, yeah. Nobody teaches you that you, like how to talk to a doctor or somebody older than you and like speak with authority. You're kind of like, I'm here. What do I do? How yeah. do I make you listen to me? And at the same time, when you're young, it's like, why don't you believe me? Like for me, that was the biggest thing. I was like, I'm sitting here telling you what's wrong with me. Why are you not believing me? Like, why do you not trust me? Where did the disconnect happen that you just stopped listening? Yeah. Like for me, they would always say, you know, you're too young to have all this going on. I'm like, I know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Or you don't look sick. Yeah. You look fine. If you were really sick, you wouldn't look like that. And like, for me, I, I think just because I've been sick for so long and I've had chronic pain for so long, I never look sick. Like my face just looks animated when I speak. And I'm so used to pretending that I'm not in pain or I don't feel like horrible. That's what my body does now. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. Just because I'm always smiling before like, oh, but you don't look that much in pain. I'm like, you don't understand. I have pain every day. Yeah. And like, I wake up with pain. I go to bed with pain. There's never a moment where I don't have some element of pain. So like, how am I supposed to show that to you? (laughs) Yeah, I walk around crying all the time because like, that's not going to help me. Yeah, no one's going to want to invite me anywhere if I showed them how I really feel. (laughs) No, exactly. It's just hard. It's, you know, growing up with a chronic illness in your 20s when you already have dating work and relationships and all this and that going on, just add a chronic illness on top of it. On it, uh, dating is like a whole other beast. Working was really hard. School was hard. Like everything is just harder because you have yeah. this added element that you're never, you can never forget about. Yeah. You can never not pay attention to. It's not like you can wake up and just do everything regardless of how you feel. Mm-hmm. You have these things that you have to do every single day to make your body function. Yeah. When I first started my Instagram quote that said, my illness doesn't define me, which is true, but it's like, the, it's the majority of my life. Like whether I like yeah. it or not. I don't care if it defines me. Yeah. It literally gets into every aspect of my life. There's not one thing in my life that is not defined in a way by chronic illness because it changed my whole life oh yeah so saying that it doesn't define you for me kind of like diminishes the importance of it Mm -hmm. it's not to say that it defines me but it's so much a part of me that it doesn't bother me if that would define me yeah I'm your older sister and I'm here bringing incredible guests to talk about different experiences well yeah because like our version like when I was growing up like when I thought of sick you think of old yeah you think of someone that's elderly, someone that is, you know, kind of done with part of their life, like their exciting part of their life, like mine. Like I'm 20, I'm in my 20s. Why am I sick? But sick doesn't look like anything. Mm -hmm. Sick is just sick. It's a word. It's a descriptive word and it doesn't have a look to it. Yeah. And I love that. I had to get 15 stitches because of a crazy accident. I was walking my dog and I tripped and one leg got 15 stitches, the other leg got a bruise. But that's a whole nother story. And I remember this old lady gave me the nastiest look. And I just hate when those people like, like you have to prove to someone else that you're sick. Like, why? Why is it that I have to do that? Yeah, I have, um, I got a wheelchair, not a wheelchair, but a disability uh, sticker. Because in mm-hmm. Canada, if you have a sticker, there's certain parking spots that you can uh-huh. park in. And they're closer. So I got one because Um, when I walk my legs swell and it's so painful because I have venous insufficiency in my Mm -hmm. legs. And so my doctor recommended getting one. And anytime I use it, I'm like terrified that somebody is going to look at me and be like, you're not disabled. It helps me. Yeah. Like I didn't want to get it. And there was so much like of my own ableism and like shame when I applied for it at first, I was like, I don't want that. I don't need that. But in reality I did. And it makes it so much easier for me to go places if I can park closer to where I need to be. Mm -hmm. But I've had so many weird looks from like young people, even. Wow. Like anybody, everybody that looks at it is, or they're, if I'm with my mom, they assume it's hers. Oh my gosh. I was the same way. I didn't want to label myself as disabled or anything like that. Or I I want to be like a normal quote unquote girl. And it's so awful when you don't accept it. And 
later you you kind of you're like I don't have a choice and then someone else gives you a stare like it's just a horrible feeling it is and it's unfair like it's hard enough for us to come to terms with our own diagnoses and our own like abilities or lack thereof like who are you to judge me yeah honestly I mean there's so much hate into this world that's why my whole thing is be kind because you never know what they're going through no, and it costs you nothing. Yeah. Do you really need to look at me like that? Does that make you feel better? Yeah. And I don't spend the whole day. I got to the point where it's like someone else's opinion of me won't bother me, but that took a really long time. Like I used to sit there and think about a lady who gave me a bad stare like a week ago. <laughs> yep, me too. Because I'm I'm also a perfectionist and I'm a people pleaser and I want everybody to be happy. So I'm like, I don't want to be a burden or irritating or something yeah. to somebody else, but I'm not. All I'm doing is using a parking spot that I'm rightfully owed. Yeah, I know. It w- it's so hard. Growing up with this in high school, I always used to like say like I put on a mask because I didn't yeah. tell anyone I had a sickness. One, wow. because it was very hard for me, you know, yeah. being Hispanic and then being a young adult going through an autoimmune disease. I didn't yeah. want to have to explain yeah. why I had this because I didn't even know. But it was so exhausting. You know, when my friends would invite me to go out to football games, I would yeah. be like, oh, I can't. And then at the end, they would be like, oh, I'm not inviting her because I know she's such a flake. And yeah. what could I do? Like, I, I couldn't say I was sick because I didn't want to. Imagine like the flake was the better word in that time. That's uh, awful. Especially in high school. Because like high school kids are mean. Oh, yeah. Like, they're not nice. No. They're just, they don't understand. And like, at 12, you don't understand it yourself. So I guess in a way, how do you, how are your peers going to? But it makes it, I'm sure it made it so much harder because like you're carrying around this secret in a way and nobody knows. What made it harder was I didn't realize how it was affecting my mental health, trying to be like this perfect student, perfect friend and everything. And then coming home and having to take that mask off and then I can truly be myself. If I could take it back though, I don't think I would change anything because I mean, that's why I'm smiling. That's why I'm so good at like faking that I I feel well. Yeah. And honestly, I don't know if it would have helped. It would have helped you to have people know, but I don't know if it would have helped socially. Yeah. And especially like at that time, like that was the 2000s, like the early 2000s. Yeah. Not a nice time. Oh no. It was so, it was (laughs) such a weird time because in a place where I really thought I was alone, I didn't know that there was all this community and now there's like um, famous people talking about it yeah. and stuff. I'm just like, if I would have had this 10 years ago, it would have helped me so much. What we had was girls wearing low rise jeans and oh, yeah. no, no body fat percentage. That's what we had to look at. Yeah. Sitting there yeah. with bodies that don't work that well. Yeah. And it was, it was so crazy. I remember going to middle school and I was so embarrassed to wear a jacket to school. Yes. Like, like, I don't know why. <laughs> no, that was here too. And really? especially in high school, like in the winter, you did not. And so Canada gets really, really cold in the mm-hmm. winter. And you would wear like either the tiniest jacket or like no jacket. Oh my gosh. Yes. I don't, I don't know what that was knowing that the cold affects me so much and why I was so embarrassed to take a jacket yep. <laughs> nowadays. I'm, you know, I don't care if I'm cold. I'll take a blanket. I'll take like socks, anything because I came to that point in my life when I just don't care, yeah. but I don't know why we were, I was just so ashamed to wear a jacket. <laughs> Peer pressure. Yeah. I you think didn't it, want to be different. It's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. My scarf for the winter doubles as like a shawl, basically. Like it's mm-hmm. so massive. I bring like a massive bag with me everywhere. I have like meds, supplies, water, everything I need does not leave the house without me. Yeah. How has that changed from when you were younger till you got older? Are you like more open about it? I was kind of, I've always been like that person. Cause like in high school, I went through, so my father died when I was in high school suddenly, and that's like a very public time, and my dad was really well known in the town that we were living in, mm-hmm. like to the point where the other high school that I didn't go to announced his funeral over the PA system. Oh my god, I'm so, so sorry. Was, thank you. So I've kind of always been publicly going through things, if that makes sense, because like everybody saw me dealing with that in high school, and nobody understood, like similar to like 
illness. Nobody knew what to do with me. Like a week after they're like, why aren't you normal? So for me, sharing has never been like difficult. Like when I started talking about my illness, it was, I just, I like, it's like breathing to me. Mm-hmm. Writing is like breathing. It's just easy. And it doesn't, it's never felt wrong or weird or difficult. Like there's stuff that I've been like worried to post, but not because I was worried to share it, but I was like worried other people's reactions to it. I think because early on, like when I started posting, I had people messaging me, asking me about endo and like other uh, people asking me about endo because they thought that they might have it. So pretty much immediately it was reinforced to me that this is something that I needed to do. That's great. I have knowledge of what each of it is, but I would like to hear from your perspective, like what is endo and everything else to you? Yeah. So um, endometriosis is tissue that is similar to the lining of the uterus that grows pretty much anywhere in your body. Um, In my case, so I had stage three, um, which, so stage three and stage four are the the worst versions of it. And that's when there is um, dye endo, which is deep infiltrating endometriosis, which just means that, um, the tissue has grown a lot more into, into your organs or into your ovaries or wherever it is, and it's deeper. So it's not so much surface level, which is what more stage one and two is. Pain has no bearing on any of the stages. You can have massive amounts of pain with stage one and no pain with stage four. So for endo, it's hard to diagnose because they can't figure out where the pain level is in respect to the extent of disease. I started bursting cysts when I was about 15. Mm-hmm. But because at the time I was not sexually active and I was 15 years old, nobody would do an ultrasound on me. They wouldn't do even like an abdominal ultrasound, let alone an internal ultrasound. So they kind of sat me in the emergency. Like, I think I remember going twice specifically, and then I just stopped going because I was like, why am I going to go for nothing? And they didn't say that cysts were anything weird or different. They're just like, no, that's normal. That's like a normal part of your hormone cycle. Some Mm -hmm. girls get cysts. So I just didn't know. Um... And that wasn't anything that I talked about because it was just, oh, okay, that's normal. What do I need to talk about it for? As I got older, I didn't tell anybody about my period pain or anything. So I had really heavy, painful periods. I had pain with sex, which is another common symptom. Bowel problems, bowel pain, constipation, uh, diarrhea. There can be, um, it, for me, it also grew all over my bladder. So my entire bladder was covered in endo to the point where they couldn't see it. My surgeon left because we hadn't actually discussed uh, my bladder. I'd had um, bladder problems since childhood because I was born with an oversized bladder that they thought I would grow into. And then funnily enough, by the time I was 24, 28, it was shriveled up to a raisin. So my surgeon left my surgery to go ask my mother if it was okay if she took all the endo off my bladder. Oh my gosh. Because you in, you have to sign, um, it has to be included in the, the write-up before you go into surgery. Mm-hmm. So I had surgery and then I unfortunately didn't get better. I had like gold standard excision surgery from an endometriosis specialist who trained under other endometriosis specialists, who was a really amazing and talented surgeon. Unfortunately, when you get to more stage three and four, you're not promised pain relief. You can completely, like it's totally possible. It just wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. And before that, I had tried birth control, but <clears throat> because I get migraines and sometimes I get auras, the birth control made me really sick um, because some people with migraines, they don't tolerate synthetic estrogen. And I did not um, try to progesterone pill because that's the other option that they give you at first, which helped. But I grew so many cysts that I was back and forth from Emerge every single month. When I was diagnosed, um, they found a large endometrioma, which is a chocolate cyst or a cyst that is basically, it's only with endo. You don't get endometriomas without anything else. And that automatically means that you're at a higher stage of disease. So for me, I never had to prove to anybody that I had endo. Because when I went to Emerge that one day, when they thought my appendix was rupturing, they found five centimeter endometrioma on my left ovary. And they're like, oh, by the way, did you know that you have endo? That would have been important information to know. (laughs) No, no, I didn't. Because I had never had an internal ultrasound until that day. No one had ever done an ultrasound on my pelvis until that day. And so every month when I burst cysts, I had to go to the hospital because the endometrioma was large and they were worried that it would cause ovarian torsion, Mm -hmm. which is basically when your ovary twists on itself because it's too heavy and then it cuts off the blood supply. And because I've had chronic pain and because a, a cyst rupture can be as painful as an appendix rupture, 
I wouldn't know. I remember I had a cyst and they thought I could potentially have endo, but thankfully I didn't. But I was 12 and no one believed the pain I felt like they were just like, oh, you probably just ate some bad food or something. And, and no. you're like, no. <laughs> and it's because I hate that it's like something that you can't see. Like yeah. you have to literally explain to them and you sound crazy explaining it. <laughs> you do. And the other added part of it is that they think that painful periods are normal or that yeah. you have to be a certain age to have endo. Like I was told that you had to be in your forties to have endo. And it's like, no, sadly, no, <laughs> I was chosen one. Any sense. Like there's people that have had endometriosis at nine. Wow. Like, they don't even know what necessarily causes it yet. They have theories and the most recent theory is genetic, but it's still the, the research is so far behind and because they think it's just a woman's disease it's not as important yeah they don't really want to find out or they're not willing to do the research and no uh, it's just so sad and until I think Hosley she's the reason why I know what endo is because she's so like open about it yeah but and like they weren't before like that when I first started talking about endo I was doing my postgrad and I, no one was talking about it. Like nobody knew, no one, no celebrity, nobody. And that was like five-ish, five, six years ago. So that whole movement has kind of happened in like the most recent years. Yeah. But imagine like you've been living with this for so long and until now is that people are openly talking about it. Like I'm telling you, like, I didn't really know about it until Hosley. So yeah, it's crazy. But it's so common. If you know 10 women or 10 people that have those reproductive organs, then you know somebody with endo. Just crazy how common it is now. Autoimmune diseases are just more common or people are just more openly talking about it now. But I know I felt alone growing up. Yeah. I think part of it is that they're more common because I, I read a statistic a little while ago and it was like 44% of people in their 20s already have a chronic illness. That's a huge number of people. Yeah. Or something that we don't really understand because most chronic illnesses they're mostly invisible medicine is great if you have a broken arm but for the majority of the chronic illnesses we don't have a lot of research yeah and a lot of the medication like I know for me it was like strong pain medication and it's just like I can't just take Tylenol or anything I have to take this it makes me super drowsy but it helps with the pain <laughs> Yeah, for endo, they like, they basically just give you hormone suppressing medication or Lupron, which is what they originally designed for prostate cancer. Oh, wow. So it just, it puts you into a chemical menopause, essentially. You can stop the med and you still have the side effects like bone pain. It, it causes osteoporosis, like horrible, horrible nerve pain and things like that. And this is like a good option. To that. Wow, that's crazy. It's just crazy how they they're willing to put us on this medication knowing yeah. the side effects and stuff and they still do it that's the best option we get <laughs> yep and with lupron um some of the studies that were done that say that lupron is effective were faked results and the doctors that did those tests have come out and said that but if you go to a doctor some of them will still say that lupron is a good idea and that it works but hormone suppression um, any other hormone medication, it doesn't actually treat endometriosis. It won't stop it from growing even. And that's what they like to tell people. At most, it can give you symptom relief, which was great. Like when I was on progesterone med, I could not have finished my postgrad without it. I was in so much pain, but it, it removed my periods. I didn't have a period for like a year. Great time. Yeah. <laughs> Loved that. But it didn't stop the endo from growing. It didn't shrink the cyst. And by the time I had surgery, I still had stage three and I was covered in it. Yeah. When if they just tell them that it'll help you with your symptoms, like that's enough reason to take it temporarily. Yeah. And but don't give them false hope, you know? Exactly. And don't tell them that like, if you take this, you're not going to need surgery, but you might still need it anyway. Yeah. And it's, it's giving people this sense of cure. There's no cure. I had that problem with endo because they tell you to have kids. Because some yeah. of them think pregnancy will cure it. I'm not sure why we thought that one up, but yeah. they'll say, you know, have a kid, it'll cure you. Okay, so if I have the kid, or they'll tell you that it'll temporarily like relieve some of your symptoms, but then while you're pregnant, you don't have a period. I think that was the thought process. Uh -huh. But then nine months later, you have a baby. Yeah. Eventually your period comes back. Who's taking care of this baby? Because it's not me. <laughs> I can't get out of bed. Are you yeah. going to take care of it for me? Oh my Is gosh. the person that I had this baby with going to take care of that? 
and me and support us. I know. Still, like a lot of young women who don't really openly talk about their disease and they're over here fighting a battle all by themselves. I feel like when you're diagnosed, you should be given like a community, like you should be given all these resources that it's like this, join this Facebook group or this Instagram thing or do this. And they should tell you to like start a social media page. Oh yeah. The best thing I could have ever done. Yeah. I'm really lucky. A couple of my friends um, are amazing and they learned about my conditions and they're so supportive and they, they're just like my biggest cheerleaders, but a lot of friends, I just lost friends. Yeah. Because they didn't understand. And they were just like, why are you not coming to visit me? Why are you not drinking? Why are you not doing this? And I'm kind of like, well, I can't walk to the bathroom today. It's those little things. When I was in high school, I had like 30 friends. When I was sick and I was going through the stroke, I had three. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I mean, I get it. It is a huge emotional thing that you're going through. But don't let me, don't like leave me alone to battle this by myself. That's like the worst thing. Exactly. And like, for me, like I'm a really supportive person. So like, if that happened to my friend, like I would be there for them. And I didn't really understand why I wasn't getting that back in a way. Yeah. And yes, it's an emotional toll. But at the same time, it's not like I'm asking you to take care of me. I'm just asking you to talk to me. Just a simple phone call. (laughs) Yeah. Or even a text message. Like, Mm -hmm. just text me. Ask me how I'm doing. Or tell me something that happened that was fun. I'm still the same person that I was. I just have limitations. Yeah. And that's the sad part is that they just think when you share with someone that you're sick, they're just like, oh, she can't go out anymore. I can still go out. Maybe I I won't drink or anything, but that's, I mean, I can still go out. (laughs) I can still do, like, when I have a good day, I can still do certain things. Yeah. But, and even if I can't, what does that make, how does that change our friendship? Because we were friends before and it wasn't just based on going out. Mm -hmm. We built a friendship prior to that. There's all these other parts to it. And one of them is if you have a handicap, you can, we can park (laughs) closer to the you know? (laughs) Right in front of the door. Exactly. So tell me. What's that about having a friend? You got to joke around it, right? Exactly. And then with dating, it's even worse. Like, I don't know if you're trying to date. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's a whole another story. It's so much worse. Because I think every time I'm really open, so I'll tell somebody really quickly. Because I'm like, I want to know if I'm wasting my time. Yeah. Not everybody can do that. Totally understand. But for me, that works best for me. And I've gotten some terrible reactions before. <laughs> the one of the worst ones was I told them and they're like, okay, well, how about you message me when you're better? So am I, am I supposed to get better? Cause I'm pretty sure my doctors didn't think that. Why would I want to talk to you when I'm better? No, honestly. If I'm not valuable right now, then I'm not valuable then. These guys. <laughs> my first one was after high school. And so I went on a date with one guy and it was so serious. You know, I'm having this full on conversation. And then he just looks at me. But can you have kids? Like, that's all he cared about. I was like, are you serious? And then like inside of me, I was like, yes, I can. But I wouldn't want one with you, you know? <laughs> that's my reaction when somebody asks me if I can have sex. I'm like, I can, but I really wouldn't with you now. The audacity. Yes. That you think that you can ask me that? Honestly. Like a few years ago when it was like this whole thigh gap trend. But how do you want to be skinny? Like, or they're like, oh, you're so lucky you're sick and all this and that. And I was like, oh my God, like, this is crazy. Just the amount that people want to look sick and underweight. I'm like, no, I'm literally fighting for my life. Yeah. Um. I had something similar to that because after my endo surgery, something happened with my stomach and I could not eat anything for six months. I drank bone broth. That's it. I could, and I had like two coffee cups of it, like not a lot of it yeah. a day. So I was severely underweight, but I didn't look it because I'm really tall. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, I'm six feet tall. So when I lost, so I weighed about 150 pounds, yeah. which for my weight is really low. Um, and I was bony and I had a doctor. Um, I was getting a a scope for my stomach, an Mm -hmm. endoscopy, and he looked at me and said, don't gain any weight. You're the perfect size right now. Don't lose, don't gain, just stay this size. I'm like, I am falling over walking to the bathroom. No, for real. I'm thinking constantly. And to him, this was good. Some medications that I take are like steroids and they make me really like, kind of like you're gaining weight, but it's like, because it's a steroid. Yeah. Yeah. You're retaining water. Mm -hmm. and it's it was the worst thing and I think that's something that 
I was really self-conscious about, especially yeah. in high school, you know, because you want to be this fit girl and you're young. You're like, why am I changing so much? It, but it's the pills. Yeah. Hormone meds did that. Yeah. I gained a lot of weight in my midsection mm-hmm. from hormone meds because that's just what it does. Yeah. It puts weight in your abdomen and your thighs and your butt and like not places at the time that I wanted weight. <laughs> yeah. And it's crazy. So until I finally came to accept my body and I'm just like, oh, this is what I have. I've never been happier. It's hard. I'm that's what I'm still like struggling with. I was buying clothes like two sizes bigger than I had been. And that was really hard for me because I'd gone from being really, really thin and being praised for that to being my, what is not overweight, but to me felt overweight and Mm -hmm. it was too heavy for my body because it hurts my joints. Like it makes it really hard to move. Mm -hmm. There's like a certain weight that my body, like what I was, was way too small. What I am is not comfortable or healthy for my body. But the middle ground is where I need to be. Weight is such a sensitive topic to a lot of females, but it's like, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what weight you are. I mean, because sadly with a chronic illness, you're going to go through so much changes. You don't have the control either. Like you can't go to the gym and work out. I can't work out. (laughs) I can sometimes not walk up my stairs. Oh yeah. It's hard. There's I'm not going to be rocking or running on a treadmill. So I don't even have the way to get rid of the weight, the way that everybody else would normally. It's like, okay, I can't go to the gym and I can't control that. So you have to learn to be okay with it. Yeah, no, I get you. I mean, there's times like, um, well, I just had a flare up on one of my foot. I was getting wound care for it, but I was laying down for two months. I couldn't get up to go walking because it was so painful. And I had to come to the mindset because I do love going to the gym yeah. when I, when I feel good, but the, there's, there's months when I'm hibernating Yeah, <laughs> because you can't. And I had to come to terms. I'm like, this is okay. This is what my body's going to look like. So you know what I do instead? I eat yes. <laughs> because I'm like, eventually I'll be able to get up, but right now yeah. I just have to enjoy it. And you need food. Our bodies struggle enough. We can't deprive them of something. So for me, I know there's some uh, food like restrictions that I have how is it for you do you have the same oh thing? yeah yeah <laughs> but I've had food restrictions since I was a child um I was diagnosed with ADD as a child and my brother was diagnosed with ADHD and we both didn't respond well to gluten and dairy and sugar mm-hmm. it kind of made all of our our ADD symptoms worse so when I was in grade three my parents cut out dairy sugar um for the most part and gluten mm-hmm. as well and yeast so I've been on like a healthy-ish diet for most of my life which people like to think that healthy diet will stop you from getting sick but it didn't I I didn't eat dairy I can't drink milk I haven't had dairy since I was little because Mm -hmm. I stopped drinking it when I was really small it hurt my stomach diet didn't make a difference see then it was a lot harder there weren't all the substitutes like place people like companies like Simple Mills or Unreal or all of those companies like they didn't exist there was just like kamut bread or or spelt bread (laughs) Oh, all the good stuff. (laughs) Or like soy ice cream or rice milk or soy milk. Like those were the only dairy alternatives back then. Now it's really easy to not eat dairy and gluten. Yeah. It was not easy then. I know. It's like a trend now. (laughs) It is. And people weren't very accepting because I was in elementary school when those changes were happening for us. So like my school, I don't know if your school did this, but we did like pizza days and like Burger King lunches and like McDonald's lunches and stuff like that. Like the school Mm -hmm. would bring in food. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't stay for any of that because I couldn't eat it. And that really singled me out to like the other kids in my class because I wasn't doing what they were doing. I can't imagine going through that as a kid, like being singled out. You're the girl who can't eat chocolate. Literally, I was the girl that couldn't eat chocolate. It was it was not fun. And like the teachers would hand out candy and sugar all the time. And I'm like, I can't have that. But they do accommodations for you or were they? No. No, like the world is very accommodating now in respect to like food allergies and stuff. It was not that. Well, for me, I stopped eating a lot of, I took milk out, milk, cheese, all that. So I just drink almond milk, which is good. And then I'm on, I'm taking Coumadin, which is a blood thinner. So with that, I can't eat greens, which is like so hard for me because like I said, when I feel good, I go to the gym, I eat really healthy. I take my green teas and unfortunately I can't do that anymore. So Uh, I know. That's I hate hard. It. I, I know. Is, grains is hard. 
I mean, as someone who used to like greens or wouldn't like it, but would force themselves to eat it to be healthy. And then they just, yeah. all of a sudden they tell you, you can't eat greens. It's like, what do I eat? How? What do I do? Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of stuck. And I, yeah, I don't have my medication. I don't take that many medications now. I kind of, I don't respond well to medications. I get basically every side effect you can get. Oh my gosh. If there's a side effect, I will get it. If there is a made up one, I will get it. Like, it's just, it's ridiculous. So oh I had to kind of, I tried a bunch of different meds for different things. Like they tried me on a whole lot of migraine meds, mm-hmm. but a lot of them come with like, a lot of them are now injectables and they've come with like terrifying side effects, um, bowel obstructions and like very things that you can't really have with endo. And you still get it. Yeah. Um, so I just didn't take them. I just avoided taking them. So my meds are pretty like small compared to what I probably should be on um, as far as medications, but it's just, they don't work for me. And it's, it's frustrating because the medical model is just to give you medications. Yeah. And because I'm sensitive and I have side effects and I have allergies to meds, they're kind of like, well, I don't know what to do with you. So bye. <laughs> See, and that's something that I love talking about is that not every medication is going to work for you or not every meal plan is going to work for you. Everyone's different. Yeah, completely true. Yeah. So you just have to find out what works and then stick to it. Like, and you have to be so confident in your choice and avoid what doctors tell you because, you know, they're not in your body. They will see you for like maybe 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then with the pandemic, most of the, most of the appointments now in Canada have been phone appointments. Oh my gosh. They're not even seeing you. Oh yeah. And how's that been for you? Horrible. (laughs) I hate. I hate phone appointments. I hate them so much. They're so ineffective. Mm-hmm. I li- they make me so angry. I've actually told all my doctors this <laughs> because they don't work. Yeah. They just, they don't. The difference between sitting in front of somebody and having them pay attention to you is mm-hmm. so different than on the phone. Like I noticed that they're moving papers or they're doing this or that. They're so distracted. Yeah. They're not even paying attention to you. No. Like I had an appointment, um, I got put in a pain clinic, right? Kind of like, unfortunately, at the beginning of COVID. Mm-hmm. I finally got into a pain clinic and then COVID happened. So mm-hmm. all my appointments were over the phone. And then after a year, I got to see the pain specialist in person. And the appointment was totally different. She's She was wonderful over the phone, but it's a completely different experience sitting in front of her. She put every puzzle piece together instead of just being on the phone and being like, okay, well, you're not here. So I can't treat you properly. Because when I mentioned to her that I get a lot of side effects from medications, she was not comfortable putting me on meds. If she couldn't see me for her, it was like, you react to everything. Mm -hmm. So if I can't have you come in a week, two weeks later and figure out if this actually did something, then there's no point. Yeah. See, and those doctors are so underrated, like an an actual doctor that will listen to you and I love those people. Oh, no, she's great. I'm really, really lucky to have her. She's the head of the pain clinic. Mm -hmm. So she's, she's honestly amazing. Like, she's so smart. You can, I don't know if you notice this, but like, you can see the wheels turning in her head as you're talking to her. She's connecting things and being, and she's the one that sent me to these other clinics. She's like, you need to be checked for these things. How did they not do this? Why did nobody do this? I'm just so grateful for those doctors that will actually do something for you. Literally, she's she um, my last appointment with her, she was actually so unhappy that I hadn't heard from any of the clinics that she sent me to that she walked downstairs to one of their offices and they were she was like, Can she have an appointment now? Wow. She literally got off the phone with me and walked down on her lunch hour to talk to them, to force them to give me an appointment. See, like I mean that's amazing that a doctor will do that, but it's just crazy how people will not see us or they'll schedule our like doctor's appointments. Well, I don't know if this is for you, but for me, it's like, I see a rheumatologist and he'll be like, okay, you're doing okay. See you in six months. It's like, are you serious? Yeah. You know how hard it is to be seen with you? Yep. Yeah. I had a really bad rheumatologist experience with my first one. She was very prescription happy. And because I didn't want to be put on gabapentin or Lyrica because she hadn't tested me for anything she did a little bit of blood work and then at my first appointment she was like yeah you maybe you have fibromyalgia are you serious like but did no follow-up 
and then just sent me back to my family doctor. She's like, yeah, maybe you have fibromyalgia. And I'm like, so are you not supposed to do something about that? No. And then what she wrote in my file prevented me from seeing a second opinion for two years. Are you serious? I can't believe there's doctors that actually do that. Oh yeah. I had whatever she wrote in because I had, I asked to be sent for a second opinion after because I was like, I don't feel like we figured it out. And what she wrote prevented me from seeing. They were like, nope, you're good. She found nothing wrong with you. Wow. And I went to see her for POTS and for Mm Ehlers-Danlos. She didn't test for either of those things. So now two years later, I'm on a wait list to get into a POTS clinic and an Ehlers-Danlos clinic to see if I have either of them. Oh my gosh. That's two years that I spent waiting, not being able to find out if that's part of my diagnosis or not. I can't believe it. And that's something that, I mean, especially with our conditions, I was, I'm always one to like look for second opinions or something because everything like at first, when they first diagnosed me, they diagnosed me with arthritis. Now, four years later, when I have like open wounds and stuff, I have scleroderma, Raynaud's, you know, all this and that, but a lot of these autoimmune diseases are so similar. There's like that fine line that they have to specifically test and everything to make sure you're on the right medication. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's overlap in symptoms and like, and fibromyalgia is like a blanket term for something that they just don't understand. It's a, it's just pain. It's what they tell people when they don't know what's wrong with them half the time. From my perspective, like that's how it's been used against me. It's like, oh, maybe you have fibromyalgia or maybe you're just depressed. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I used to get depression all the time. Yeah. Like they used to want to put me like on some um antidepressant or something. They thought like my illness was mental. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, the same like, thing. It's just so sad. And then the problem is that it got to the point where like I wouldn't talk about mental health issues with doctors. Like oh, yeah. I like it's only recently that I've admitted any of it because I have diagnoses now that I feel like I can't be judged for. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have enough like actual health diagnoses that I can say that there may be this other element instead of just having them use it against me. Yeah. Which isn't fair because I've been struggling with whatever these, uh, these mental health issues are for a long time. But because that's what they say to girls with pain, yeah, you don't get to tell them. So I just, I hit it for a really long time. I mean, that's just so crazy. Like it goes back to what I was saying in the beginning. It's like, you're putting on a mask to try to accommodate everyone else, but no one's accommodating us. No, because we're so worried that they're just going to decide that it's anxiety or depression and then they're going to miss something. And that something is going to be like the really important thing. Yeah. The like the, the be all end all, then they're going to, and then you're going to lose time. And that was my biggest problem with it. Like, I didn't want them to be stuck on anxiety, depression, and then lose more time not having a good diagnosis or any diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. And so I appreciate, that's why I appreciate like all your TikToks and stuff, because you talk about your sickness, but in such a comedic way or, or something like, I know your recent one was um, when people finally listened to you. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can so relate to this. So I've been watching your TikToks and I will say they're amazing. Thank you. <laughs> so what's your TikTok? Yeah. So my TikTok username is my name. It's just Genya Kuypers. Um, and that's all of my social media. So my Instagram, my Twitter that I don't really use, um, <laughs> but my TikTok and my Instagram are the same. They're just uh, Genya Kuypers. Um, so it's just G-E-N-I-A-K-U-Y-P-E-R-S. I love that awareness. And I feel like you're finding this community and it's so helpful. That's how I found you. So I appreciate yeah. that. Thank you. It's 600 people outside. You're like, oh yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> it is. And it's like this many people are listening to me and they're watching what I'm doing and they're like liking this. Yes. And it's like, wow, there's all these other people that feel that way. Mm-hmm. Like the most recent thing that I started sharing was I used to, I always wrote poetry. I don't call it poetry, but it's kind of poetry. And I wrote it in high school and it was kind of like something that I never shared with anybody. Mm-hmm. I have like a very hidden um, secret Tumblr still. Cause I was one of those people <laughs> um, and I would post it there and it was, it got a little bit of attention on Tumblr and stuff, but it doesn't have my name in it or anything like that. So then 
recently I started writing a little bit more about like chronic illness and stuff. And then I started sharing that and it's amazing the response that I get. And it's also heartbreaking that people are relating to it. Yeah. Like there's so many people out there that have something that even though they don't openly talk about it, but it's like, I feel responsible to talk about, to use my voice because I'm not ashamed of it. But I know there's people that are probably still kind of secreted or something, or they don't have like the confidence enough to share it. Well, yeah, because a lot of people don't have like family support. or their family doesn't believe them and like to me that's just heartbreaking like how can your family not believe you yeah I mean one thing is like not having friends or doctors to listen to you but your family you know yeah yeah, that's gonna hit different exactly and it's like if I can do that and if I can make it feel even a little bit better for you or make you feel like you're not completely alone then like that's worth it I'll make myself look stupid I don't (laughs) care my shame is gone I've had surgeries. I've had doctors look at me naked many times. I have no shame. (laughs) Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. And like I said, I'll leave all your socials down below. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you again soon because I know this won't be the last. Thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun and it's been wonderful actually (laughs) talking to you on video. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me on the Self Love Sister Podcast. Bye. You don't know what you have until it's gone. Through loss, I, Kimberly, host of Self Love Sister Podcast, am learning to live. From the age of eight, I suffered from multiple autoimmune diseases which took my capacity to walk and even to speak. As these abilities gradually returned, I found a deep gratitude for this delicate and wonderful life. The fact that I may suffer a relapse at any time pushes me to appreciate all the more the wonder of living here and now. Through sharing my experiences and through interviewing others, I invite listeners to experience their own gratitude for life. This podcast is sponsored by The Podcast Farm. If you want help starting or growing your show, please click the link in the show notes.